0: So we have been spending the entire summer um, looking at the ministry of Jesus um, from the moment that he showed up. Uh, as an adult, on the shores of the Jordan River, um, all the way through to last week, we've made it all the way up into the upper room as his ministry um, was winding down. And we've been basically looking at how Jesus, through his teachings and his actions, um, basically turned everything that the religious world knew um, upside down. Um, Their understanding about religion, about God, about how God interacts with man, how man interacts with God, just their entire worldview and how they went about Um, operating and seeing um, not just themselves and God, but other people. Um, Jesus basically spent three years doing things that just completely turned all of those understandings upside down. Um, Now, I know that as as we come to the end of this series, um, and the end of the summer, um, we've got this week and next week left, I know that that we've kind of gone through and we made it all the way up into the upper room, But for these next two weeks to end it, we're going to jump back in time in the story. Um, Because the reason I wanted to do that, and I really debated, like, do I want to just keep it totally chronological and we can end when it's ended? But I really wanted to leave the series with Jesus's two big ideas. That is the two things that he, as you look through the things that he modeled the most and the things that he spoke about the most. Um, And so that's what we're going to do these last two weeks. So we're going to go back in time from the upper room. um, And if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22 um, to get rolling today. And in this passage, um, we are eventually today, just to kind of give you a little roadmap, we're eventually going to land on a parable that you're really familiar with. But it's interesting how many things set up this parable and how many things had to happen and go through um, to get there. And so we're going to start... To get to our ultimate goal, we're going to start in Matthew 22. And in this passage, Jesus is confronted by three groups of people. And they are all religious people. And all of their goals was to discredit him. Um, because he was becoming extremely popular and they didn't like that. And it was taking away their influence and their power. And they were worried about the status quo being disrupted. And so they had hatched these plans, um, to basically make him look ridiculous, catch him in, um, some theological, um, misgivings that would cause him to lose credibility. Um, and they're basically what they are trying to do is use Jesus and leverage Jesus, um, to be a part of their thing and their plan and to gain their power and influence, which if we look at today's culture, probably is still happening quite a bit. Um, And so they decided that they were gonna regain their credibility and their influence through Jesus based on um, these things that they were going to catch him in. So Matthew chapter 22, we are gonna be starting in verse 15. And it says this, then the Pharisees, went out and made plans to trap him in his words. And listen, when you say a lot of words, it's fairly easy to get trapped in words. Is anybody a lot of word sayer? Yeah, yeah. See, generally in life, I'm not a lot of word sayer. I say a lot of words in this very concentrated time once a week right here. Other than that, I'm not a big word guy. Um, And so I'm lucky, I'm lucky I haven't stumbled into more getting caught in my word situations. Now my wife, she's in all the time, a lot of words. <laughs> you all know, right? So yeah, and so, you know, my poor wife, she gets caught in some words sometimes. And so she's learned how to, you know, recognize that and, and dole out some apologies and, and be good with everybody. So this is what they were planning on to do. Getting Jesus caught up, trapped in his words. And so they sent their disciples to him. Now, I'm not sure what they were thinking, Because they basically send their apprentices, the JV squad, right? And I'm not sure because as they've been watching Jesus, like he has shown himself to be pretty sharp and a force to be reckoned with. In fact, it's why they're doing this because of his influence and how good he's been at what he does. But they send the second string along with the Herodians. And the Herodians were a group of people who believed that Israel should completely just submit to the Roman occupation, right? And so the Pharisees, on one hand, they didn't think you should submit to Rome. I mean, they were kind of submitting on a surface level to make sure that the religious leaders got to do what they wanted, but they were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for um, somebody to, to free them out from underneath of Rome. Well, the Herodians thought, eh, we should just... So this was, this was uh, some people from both groups. They go to ask Jesus this great question that they had come up with. And, and this question is basically gonna ch- force Jesus to choose sides. Am I gonna choose to submit to Rome or not submit to Rome? Well, whichever side he chooses, the other side's gonna go tell on him, right? If he chooses, hey, we need to submit to Rome, well, then there goes all of his influence with the people. He's lost the Jewish people. If he says, no, we're not going to submit to Rome, then they're going to go tell on him to Rome and they're going to take care of the Jesus problem, right? So at least that's how they hope it works out. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Anybody who has a child knows exactly what's happening right now. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, right? Jesus, you're the best. So tell us what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, the tax that they were talking about was basically a poll tax. And the Jewish people hated this tax because this tax was a constant reminder that they were not in charge of their own destiny. That Rome was in fact in charge of all that they did. And so the question that they asked was not should we pay taxes to Rome? The question that they ask, and they spent a lot of time thinking about this to phrase it just right. The question they asked was, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And the reason that this is so well thought out and well thought through is because the Jews believed that to pay taxes to Caesar is to recognize Caesar's authority, which makes sense. But Caesar, in his authority, had declared himself divine. And so to recognize or pay this money was to acknowledge that Caesar was indeed divine or God. Right? So this is a, they they sprung it. They sprung it. They're like, yes, we sprung the trap. He's got no way out. And the other group, they thought, well, no, 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 no. No, no. It's ridiculous. This is all ridiculous. It's God's plan that we're under Roman rule. So he probably should just say, you know, let's go along with God's plan. Echoes of declaring God's plan in who's running things are still heard today. So there are all these religious implications sitting in it. Jesus doesn't fall for it. Jesus, knowing their evil intent, says, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? <laughs> right? Just, I mean, calls them right out. Like, ah, you guys are idiots. I saw you coming before you even got out of bed this morning. Like, don't think you're going to be like, in fact, I was so ready for you. Here's what we're going to do. Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And this is brilliant because he basically says, do any of you have on you the coins that you use to pay the taxes? Because if you do, you are guilty of exactly what it is that you're accusing me of. Because if you have one of those coins on you, you have already bought into Roman economy. You've already bought into the economic system and placed value on the coins. And he called them hypocrites because they paid their taxes using Roman coins to do it. So they dig around in their little satchels. And they come up with a coin. And they brought him a denarius. That's what the currency was. And he asked them, whose image is this? I assume he's holding it up. You guys see, whose, whose is this? And whose inscription? And they all knew. So they answered, Caesar's. They reply. And I imagine Jesus was looking at him, just kind of a little smirk on his face. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. You have a coin with Caesar's picture and his inscription on it. Then he said to them, So, since you've already bought into the system, since you're holding something that's got his picture on it, how about you give back to Caesar? What is Caesar's? In other words, the reason you have that in your possession to start with is because he gave it to you. That is where it came from. The reason these coins are in circulation is because he put them in circulation. So if he wants them back, give them back. Long pause. They're probably thinking, okay, yeah, okay. That kind of makes sense. But he's not done. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. and," And he gives the big statement. Give to God what is God's. In other words, he's basically looking at him and he's saying, okay, quit playing games. Quit trying to manipulate the law to get what you want. Quit trying to squeeze God into your agenda and making him behave the way you want. Come on, guys, knock it off. And then look at how this ends. When they heard this, these group of questioners, they were amazed. They had spent weeks coming up with this question. The Pharisees who thought the JV guys could pull this off. They were standing in the background of the crowd watching. They had sent in the second string. The Herodians were there. The crowd was gathered. They were sure that no matter which way he answered they had him. It was foolproof. And in one moment, he dismantled their whole attack. So, they left and went away, probably thinking, "My gosh, that was a stupid question." <laughs> like, who thought who thought of that question? But they, they forgot, or they didn't know who they were dealing with. Ah, whose idea was it to send in the JV squad? Whose idea? The story keeps going. Because after that, the Sadducees, who were not the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they sent a group of guys. And they're like, ah, we saw the Pharisees' question fail, but we've got a question of our own. Now, to understand why this question was going to be a trap is because the Sadducees did not believe that there was any sort of afterlife. So you got the Pharisees who are the main religious leaders. They believe in afterlife. Sadducees don't believe in afterlife. Once you're dead, you're dead. That's why they were sad. You see, yes. So they're like, okay, we've, we've got a question. And we've got this scenario that we've come up with that is so brilliant. It is going to show how ridiculous it is for somebody to think, that there's an afterlife. So here's how, here's how their scenario went. Jewish law basically stated that if a woman married a man and the man died and did not have children, that the woman was to marry the next oldest brother and have children for the brother who died. How many of you glad we don't live under that law? <laughs> yeah, but this was the Jewish law at the time. So they're like, okay, here's the law. We've got a scenario. Jesus, a man married a woman and he died. And so she married his next younger brother. But Jesus, that brother, he died too. So she married the third brother. And Jesus, wouldn't you know it? The third brother before she was able to have a child died. And she married The fourth brother. Now, pause the story for a second. If you're the fourth brother, are you like, what is happening here? (laughs) Right? Like, oh, it didn't go well with the first three. Maybe me is number four. Maybe I should. But no, she marries the fourth. And guess what the fourth does? Dies. And so does the fifth. And so does the sixth. And so does the seventh. I call into question the wisdom of the seventh. He probably deserved the death that befell him. (laughs) So here's this woman who married seven brothers here on earth. Finally, Jesus, she dies. So when she gets to heaven, whose wife is she? See Jesus, see just how ridiculous it would be to just, I mean, how messy, how complicated, how just not practical the idea of somebody having life after their death is Jesus. You can't rebuke this. I think we've got you. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. (laughs) That was just straight up insult right? They're like, okay, we've worked so hard. We've got this great question. We know we want to know what you think. And Jesus basically gave them the equivalent of, you guys are idiots. Like what in the world? You don't like, this is so insulting. They spent their life studying the scripture. It's what they did. It was their job. Their job was to know the scripture. And Jesus looks at them and says, nope, you don't even know it. And basically, you, you, you know it's so little. Listen, first of all, Jesus says, there's no marriage in the afterlife. For some of you, this may be good news. <laughs> For some of you, you may be thinking, no, I don't want that. I can't imagine being in any kind of life without my loving spouse beside me. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. There's no marriage in the afterlife. And then... And then Jesus, through, through, the, through the exegesis of a verb tense, proves to them that indeed he was right when he told them that they did not know the scriptures because he took them to a well-known scripture and proved to them that there indeed was going to be life after death. It was a very interesting exchange. I encourage you to go home and read it this afternoon. And so after he made them fools, Here's what happened. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teachings. Who is this guy? Where does he get this stuff? And the Sadducees were probably walking away thinking like, whose idea was this stupid question? Why would we do this? Now, you would think after two very public defeats that everybody that was an enemy of Jesus would pack it in for the day and go home and be like, we need to organize ourselves a little better. But that was not the case. Verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Now, the Pharisees were the ones who sent the JV squad in the first time. And they saw the Sadducees mess up the second question. So they thought, well, we're going to have to handle this ourselves. Because after all, we are the ultimate authority within this system. So they get their smartest guy and they send him to Jesus. One of them, the expert in the law, he's a judge. So whenever there's a question in the law, he would be the one to interpret it. Whenever people would be considered guilty of breaking a law and would be charged, he would be the one that would make the final call. He tested him with this question. But when he asked the question, Jesus shuts him down so fast that we don't even know the angle that he was going for. The first two questions, we know the angle they were trying to trap him in. We don't even know it in this one. We don't know. But, but I bet he had an answer prepared. That whatever Jesus answered, he was gonna be able to be like, ah, gotcha, discredit you. But Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the expert's probably thinking, aha, this is kind of what I thought he would say. And he's getting ready to jump and discredit Jesus. But before he can say something else, Jesus keeps going and he says, and, 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 and. The second is like it. To which the guy probably thought, second, No, 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 Jesus, I asked, what is the greatest commandment? You don't get two. This is going to mess up my trick. (laughs) Like, no, you don't get two. But Jesus says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a big idea number one we're ending on in this series. Love your neighbor as yourself. And as the expert in the law that was sitting there questioning him is trying to like reshuffle the deck and they're like, okay, oh man, he's messed up my trick. What can I say now? What can I do it? Jesus lays an insight on them that just absolutely baffles them. Flips their understanding of the law completely upside down. Jesus says, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. The entire law, Jesus says. All of it hinges, depends upon these two things. Love God, love others. The rest of it is worthless without those two things. And as much as this is an idea that we've read before, I hit this idea of loving God and loving others probably once a year to make sure none of you forget it. They hadn't seen it like this before because they had always had categories of who to love and who not to love and who to accept and who to hate and who to pray for and who not to pray for and all of this. They'd never seen it that way. And the guy's just standing there and he's just stumped because Jesus had just taken over 600 laws and rules and practices and narrowed them down to two. Two. Which do you think is easier to process? 600 or two? but yet it seemed the 600 was used to get out of at least one of the two. Mind blown. Theology turned upside down. Now, this whole idea, loving others, this was an uncomfortable idea for the religious leaders and the religious people. Because they, the, the, the love God part, okay, they got that. And that was more of a commitment to out of fear of to God. But, but they, had that, they had that part but there was some ambiguity about the second one, the love others. So later on, we see a guy do what religious people up to that point had always done and still continue to do to this very day. In Luke chapter 10, we find this. On one occasion, an expert in the law, another judge, stood up to test Jesus. (laughs) Apparently he wasn't paying attention to how that went the first time. And he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, as this man is asking this, he's assuming that he already had eternal life. He was an expert in the law. It was his job to live keeping the law. And the crowd assumed that this guy had eternal life. But he wasn't asking to really know. He was asking to discredit Jesus. And so Jesus wisely responds like this. What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? You're the expert. You're the one who knows it all. Why don't you tell me what you need to do? This is brilliant. This is a brilliant way for Jesus to respond, right? And then the expert in the law very unbrilliantly decides to answer Jesus's questions. It was the old switcheroo, the tables were turned. He didn't even realize that he stepped into Jesus's trap says, how do you, how do you read it? And so he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we've heard that somewhere before, haven't we? Right? Jesus, Jesus spouted those things as the two greatest commandments. The last time they tried to trap him, right? And we don't know if this guy was just mimicking what he had heard Jesus said, or if this is actually what he thought that he needed to do. But this is what he said. Love God, love your neighbors as yourself. And Jesus wisely answers him. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus turns around to leave. Right? In other words, he's like, listen, buddy, I'm going to tell you what you already think because you aren't here to learn from me anyway, right? So I'm not going to enter into this discussion with you. You do what you think. And so everybody watching is probably like, oh, okay, that was a little anticlimactic, but okay. But suddenly this guy's feeling a little insecure. And here's why. Because he had just said for eternal life, you've got to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's a little open-ended, isn't it? Right? Right? Especially love, love your neighbor. Whoa, 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 whoa. If eternal life, if my eternal life is resting on me, loving my neighbor, then Jesus, don't walk away so quick. We need to have a discussion. Because that leaves quite a wide interpretation for something on which my eternal life depends. So he's like, Jesus, we're not done. Verse 29, he wanted to justify himself. So he asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In other words, Jesus, let's talk about this. Jesus, because listen, listen, listen. It can't be like just as clear as you're just making it sound and walking away. Right? We need to know who exactly is my neighbor. Now, the word neighbor in the Hebrew basically means one who is close, right? And even that is still left to a lot of interpretations. So the Jewish people in general, they interpreted this love your neighbors command. They interpreted it as your neighbors were other Jews. And so if you were Jewish and I was Jewish, we were neighbors, You weren't and I was, we're not neighbors. Then the Pharisees, they had narrowed it down even more to mean those who are righteous or ceremonially clean within the religious system. In other words, those who are acceptable to God. So they discredit even more people who qualify as their neighbors. And there was another group who basically went a step further and they narrowed it down to neighbor can mean whatever you want it to mean. It does not have a solid definition. It's whoever you want it to be. If I don't like you, you are no longer my neighbor. And if you are no longer my neighbor, guess what I don't have to do? Love you. Now, it's easy to read this. Story and to see like how these people have interpreted this and judge them and be angry at them and look down upon them for disqualifying people as being neighbors. But listen, we're, we're no different today. Christians are still doing this exact same thing. Just this week, I read an article in which, in which somebody had gone down and was interviewing people who claimed to be Christian, who were in Southern border States and asking them specifically about the whole situation going on along the border, specifically how they viewed it through the lens of their faith. And I read, and I was just baffled as person after person explained how they viewed it and used their religion and the love thy neighbor. I mean, specifically, the person was asking them, this idea of love your neighbor, how do you relate this to what's going on? And to watch the mental gymnastics and the intellectual dishonesty that the people went through to disqualify anyone from south of the border as being a neighbor. They use, well, no, that's talking about your fellow countrymen. Well, no, if you break a law to get in here, well, then, you know, you're a lawbreaker. And so then that disqualifies you. And just excuse after excuse and reason after reason to disqualify people from being neighbors whom Jesus commanded us to love. They would have fit in perfectly with the religious leaders and people of Jesus's time. So, This was pretty ambiguous. So he's like, Jesus, if my (laughs) everlasting soul depends on this, I need to know exactly who is my neighbor. And really, this is a fair question for him to ask. But here's what I want you to be sensitive to as we look at this. The idea that when we ask these types of questions, many times they are asked to draw us into a discussion. And at the end of the discussion, there is no moral or ethical clarity. And because there's no clarity within the discussion, there, there's no reason for us to actually do anything. Because without clarity, there's not a mandate. And we've got to be careful because we can enter into these kind of questions and thoughts and debates or whatever. And we're smart enough to talk ourselves into anything and out of anything if we really want to. And the danger isn't having a discussion and looking at all sides of the arguments and seeing what might be best and what we think. Is right or is wrong? The danger is, is that when there is a sense of clarity and you don't act, and then you have these discussions to kind of, you know, muddy everything up to excuse yourself from doing something that you don't really want to do. So this guy muddies up the subject, Jesus, 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 let's talk about who's my neighbor. Jesus responds by telling this story. (laughs) So that was the introduction to the sermon. (laughs) We're finally to the parable. All of that had to take place for us to get here. In reply, Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and all the disciples probably rolled their eyes because they're like, uh, another one of Jesus' made up stories that we don't know what they mean. And when he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, it's not a true story. It's a made up story to illustrate a point which he never tells the point until the end of these stories and sometimes not even then. So he's got a guy half dead and a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Why? We don't know why. Jesus doesn't tell us why. It's a made up story, but here's what we can assume. That sometime between when the priest saw the injured guy and when he passed the injured guy, he decided I should not stop and help the injured guy. I don't know if he was afraid, too busy, didn't know him. So he didn't care, was going from the temple to somewhere. It was already clean, didn't want to become unclean. But we know he convinced himself that he should not help somebody who needed help. Jesus keeps going. So a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. Now, why did the Levite pass by on the other side? Again, we don't know. All we know is that the same thing as the first guy. Between the time he saw a person injured on the side of the road, by the time between when he saw him and passed him, he decided, I don't need to help this guy. But a Samaritan. Now, here's the great thing about Jesus' stories, as we saw a couple weeks ago. He can make them out to be like the worst case scenarios. And that's exactly what he does here because he brings the third guy in being a Samaritan. And the Jews hated the Samaritans hated them. They considered them a half-breed because years before, a king had conquered the Jews and taken many of them off into their own land and they intermarried. And the the group of people that basically became half-Jews, they were outside of the Jewish culture. They were not accepted into the Jewish world. And so the Jewish people hated them So much so that even though Samaria was in the middle of a route that they needed to travel often, they would not go through because they hated them so much. They would go out of their way by days to get to where they were going. So Jesus factors this into the story. Like, I really want this to just dig and stick. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. In other words, he saw what needed done. And he felt appropriately. When you see somebody injured and dying, the appropriate thing to do is help. Your religious leader didn't do it. The Levi didn't do it. The Samaritan that you all despise, he did it. He went to him and bandaged his wound, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. And the disciples like, okay, this is a great story, Jesus. But who's my neighbor was the question. You're talking about some guy that got beat up and whatever and stopping and helmet. There's a great story, but it doesn't tell me who my neighbor is. And Jesus, in his brilliant way of handling things that he did, he basically turns to the guy who asked the wrong question. The, one, the question that was designed to get into a discussion, to be able to have back and forth an argument and, and to make things muddy To where at the end, you know, nobody was really clear on who neighbor was and so we could all go along, you know, just doing our own thing and not having to worry about neighbor and everlasting life and all of these things. Jesus turns to the guy who asked the question. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? In other words, you're asking the wrong question. It's not who is my neighbor It's, are you acting neighborly? And going back to the original verse that we started with, this is so convicting. Which one of these loved a neighbor as himself? Which one did for someone what they would want done for them? See, you're wanting to get into a discussion, Jesus says. You're wanting to get into a discussion about neighbor's so that at the end, there's no clarity and you don't have to do anything. You won't have to be inconvenienced. It won't cost you anything, right? You, you, won't, you can go along thinking, oh, I'm a good little Christian because whoever I've decided is my neighbor, I treat them really well and I love them. And it's great. Because after all, my neighbor is who I want my neighbor to be. And then I love this response because the guy, they hated the Samaritan so much that even in a made up story, the guy couldn't even bring himself to say Samaritan. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. The one who saw what needed done and did it. The one who reacted appropriately to someone in need. He's the one who fulfilled the commandment. He didn't sit around and qualify who was and who was not his neighbor. And then listen to these words that Jesus closes with. So Jesus told him, "Go and do likewise." How convicting. He took their understanding of an ancient command and he turned it upside down. He redefined neighbor. In other words, Jesus looked up and said neighbor is everyone. It's everybody. It's the people that you don't like. The people you do like. It's the people that you don't want to be near. The people you don't want to spend time with. The people that you don't want in your country. And they're probably listening and thinking about this and being like, oh, okay, Jesus. So you've clarified who our neighbor is with this made up story of yours. Our neighbor's supposed to be everybody. uh." (sighs) But Jesus... I've got one more clarifying question. Jesus, (laughs) I'm almost afraid to ask this, but if if eternal life depends on it, I've got to ask the question. (coughs) You've made it clear that everyone is my neighbor, but what exactly does it mean to love? To which Jesus looks at him and says, that is a great question. Come back next week and I'll tell you the answer. (laughs) Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, mm, Lord, this hits home to probably every single one of us. Lord, it is easy for us to love the people we like. It is easy for us to love the people who are like us, the people we get along with, the people who love us in return. But Lord, probably every single one of us in this room are guilty of at one point or another disqualifying someone as our neighbor and excusing ourselves from doing what we should be doing. Dear Heavenly Father, this week I I, I pray, Lord, I pray that as people spend time this week in prayer and in silence with you, Lord, I pray you make this an uncomfortable week for us. Lord, cause us to examine our hearts. And if there have been people that we have disqualified, that we have not acted neighborly towards, And Lord, even more, convict us if we have somehow used you and your word to disqualify people from love whom you love, who are made in your image, who you sent your son to die for. God, convict us. Cause us to come to a point of repentance And when we come to that point of repentance, Father, let us see, open our eyes so that we can view those around us, all of those around us the way that you view them and that we can feel the appropriate feelings and act accordingly to treat them the way you would have us to treat them because God, every single person is our neighbor. We do not get to disqualify. Lord, I thank you that through your word and through your spirit, that you do not let us off the hook and that you make us uncomfortable and you force us to face things that we work really hard to not have to face. Lord, let this week be one of those times. Father, I love you. I thank you for your mercy and your grace that you extend to us even on our most unworthy times. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you for being with us. Please be here next week as we wrap up our series and learn what it is to love.